0: Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGEN. My name is Jen Lee.
1: And my name is Peter Liu, and we are Pediatric Gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. During the interview, we're also joined by our co-host, Dr. Jason Silverman. He's a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta.
0: Today, we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jennifer Lightdale. Dr. Lightdale is the president-elect, the newly elected president-elect of NASP again. Awesome. She is a professor of pediatrics at UMass Memorial, and she is the division chief of pediatric GI there.
1: So as many of you know, Dr. Lightdale has had a very accomplished career thus far. Um, A lot of her work has focused on how to improve the quality of the pediatric endoscopies that we do in pediatric GI. So we sit down and talk to her about that, about her career, and about her advice for us as more junior faculty and as trainees.
0: Yeah, let's go check it out. On to the show. Dr. Lightdale, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bowel Sounds. Thanks for having me.
1: Just kind of to get to know each other better. But Um, there's
0: only one right answer. Yeah. It's Bowel Sounds. It's Indian Matchmaking on
1: Netflix. But (laughs) it's okay. So tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you've read, listened to, watched recently that you would recommend. So it doesn't have to be medical, just whatever you're currently um, enjoying
2: do you want something that's serious and makes me sound good or do you want something how about, more my advice? How
1: vice? about both? Like-
2: <laughs> All right. Well, no. So I actually enjoy reading and I'm in a number of book clubs. And uh, I think something I'm reading at the moment that's pretty fantastic is The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson, which mm-hmm. is really the story of Churchill at the very beginning of Britain and, and during the World War II. And it's quite, a, quite an amazing book. I don't know if you've Read other stuff by Eric Larson, but he wrote uh, The Devil in the White City. Yes, he read that one. I, it's, love I that mean, one. they're just fantastic. Yeah. And what's, what is amazing, that's history. And he says in his introduction that everything you're reading, including gestures, are actually from primary text. It's literally oh, wow. history. Mm. So totally recommend that one. And then uh, True Vice is uh, the Outlander series. So I definitely <laughs> I've watched it. <laughs> definitely. Uh, it's fun to watch it. Um, but even better have been the books. So I'm deep into the books. They are very long, very, very long. I think I'm into book seven or eight. But you know, the one I'm reading right now, and I'm not even reading. I listen to it. is uh, It's about 900 pages, oh, wow. and it's taken about I think it's uh, over 100 hours of listening. And it's just useful for my commute back and forth from Brookline to Worcester. Sure. So wow. <laughs> it actually works well, especially if I need a break from the news. Yeah. So, um, I always yeah. need a break from <laughs> We the all news. do.
3: We all do. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So I've got a, I've got a seven-year-old and a four and a half-year-old. The seven-year-old is tearing his way through the Harry Potter series. Oh. Nice. And, and we're having like a family debate about how, how old does he need to be to start book four? And how old does he need to be to be, to read book five? Um, we had some tearful arguments when I, I wouldn't let him read book four when he was still six and, um, so so I kind of feel like I need to have read it so I can make an informed right. decision.
0: That's probably a good idea. They get darker the further along yeah. they go.
3: So that's that's my that's what's currently on my bedstand.
2: Fantastic, nice.
0: fantastic! I now have a bed I'll stand because I moved
2: last week, and we did not. But as of last night, I have a bed stand. That's exciting! <laughs> that all sounds fantastic. Nice. I mean, I think Harry Potter. I read only read the books. I actually have barely seen the movies. So, good wow. choice.
1: All right, all right. On thought. to the real One content. To stuff.
2: <laughs> Although today we're going to talk about
0: endoscopy, arguably some <clears throat> of the too. most fun topics, in and the GI. best
1: study acronym ever penguin?
0: I know. We'll get so. to that. Oh. <laughs> you're again.
3: So Dr. Lightdale, you know, a lot of your career, it's centered around safety and quality surrounding pediatric endoscopy. Uh, you've been an author on many publications that start with the role of endoscopy in fill in the blank here. Um, so how, how did you Get into it. I mean, obviously, all gastroenterologists are interested in endoscopy. We all love it. Why was this your passion? How did you get into the quality aspects of endoscopy?
2: So it didn't start by being interested in endoscopy. So let's start there. I actually I did my residency at uh, the University of California, San Francisco, and two people who really turned me on to GI did so sequentially. So the first was Phil Rosenthal, who's a hepatologist. And I really did all of my original work with Phil. My original DDW abstracts were with Phil around liver transplantation, which I was actually a big passion of mine. And I thought I'd go into hepatology. Frankly, that's actually why I decided to do GI. And then Mel started seeing me hanging around, Mel Hyman, and he sort of pulled me into thinking about his world, which was a little bit more about the lumen as opposed to the liver. And they definitely had a little competition going on there to see which, <laughs> which would be more exciting. I then wound up going to Boston Children's for fellowship. And when I arrived at Boston Children's, the liver transplant service had just gone, was going through a transition. There was actually no surgeon at Boston Children's during my fellowship. Uh, And so we were not doing transplants at Boston Children's. And um, I basically was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And that is when the lumen began to really loom in my life, I guess. And I really started to (laughs) to sort of think, think about endoscopy. And of course, there I had the real privilege of working with Victor Fox and um, right around that time is when the Institute of Medicine came out with the report to error is human and started pointing out that we were making errors in medicine, which of course, up until then, people were like, who, me, you know, have a medical error, do something wrong in medicine, create harm to the patient. That was sort of all foreign. I mean, it was quite revolutionary at the time for doctors to acknowledge that they were making mistakes. And one of the mistakes I felt like I, I was personally making, but I felt like you could see happening on a regular basis was around how we were sedating kids for procedures. And so I started to link those pieces together and really started looking at the safety of sedation. How do we improve the quality of endoscopy and hence a career?
3: It's a great origin story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Never I feel like it we're about it. to start a movie, like the origin story of a
2: superhero. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Can you explain what big mistakes you were noticing during the time of your fellowship?
2: Sure. So I think the big mistake you could see that pediatric gastroenterologists were making with sedation was having difficulty titrating medications. So we would bring a child back into the endoscopy room and uh, start to give them medicines and at first they would not be sedated and then they would become over sedated and I think it became a question of whether we were using the right medicine. So that was one of the research topics I went after. Uh, were we giving the medicines in the right combinations? Were we trained in how to give medicine? So these were all themes in my um, research at the time. And then a very big question was, could we predict which kids were not going to sedate well and which kids we might need to refer to anesthesia? And I actually uh, was able to get what's called a KO8 to study that question. Could I figure out which kids were not going to sedate and we actually needed to give them general anesthesia? And did
0: you figure it out?
2: Alas, no. Uh, Definitely a big thing that started to become clear, is uh, there was a lot going on with sedation, many more factors in it than just, say, uh, personality type on the part of the, the patient or even of the physician, uh, certainly more than just which drugs we were using. Uh, so actually, at some point, I started focusing more on what technologies could we use to better monitor patients. Uh, and here, I think an interesting factoid is uh, pulse oximetry, which is really our way of I think collectively in medicine and healthcare, feeling that a patient is breathing well is actually, um, first off, something that was discovered to be abuse. The, the very first studies of pulse oximetry are actually in endoscopy. Uh, when you look back at how we decided whether someone was oversedated, adults, the adult endoscopist decided whether someone was oversedated in endoscopy in the 90s it was uh to notice that the patient turned blue that's actually quite difficult to do in a dark room and uh so as pulse oximetry uh became more available it became clear that when you are blue your uh, oxygen saturation is in the low 60s um and so that's not good so they think once we figured that out pulse oximetry was quickly adopted in endoscopy and of course went absolutely uh viral so to speak across all of healthcare and is the way we feel good that a patient is well oxygenated uh, it is actually, it turns out, quite a late sign that someone has not been breathing well. So I became very interested in a technology called capnography, which initially was something only the anesthesiologist could get uh, in intubated patients, really, with a closed circuit where they can measure uh, ventilation as opposed to oxygenation. And uh, it Technology came out right during my fellowship that allowed us to measure it in non-intubated patients. So I began to use what's called microstream capnography, or um, basically capnography in non-intubated patients. I did a whole randomized controlled trial of that, um, and uh, actually, really, that that was um, a wonderful piece of my early years of my uh, career, both in fellowship and then later in my in my junior career and um, actually brought me into a whole world of working with anesthesiologists and of course, it has turned out to be a very important technology.
0: I'm going to kind of skip ahead then, because in current practice, we work in conjunction with pediatric anesthesiologists, but it's not always been this way. So how did we get to this point? <laughs> and what do you feel is the safest way for us to sedate our patients for endoscopic mm-hmm. procedures?
2: Well, can I start with that, that last question first? So the, the safest way to sedate our patients is honestly recognizing that sedation itself for the procedures is I think necessary. Children don't want to undergo an endoscopy without being comfortable. And we frankly don't want to do it the old way. And really understanding how sedatives work is, is quite complex. And uh, the last thing you want to do is just jump into sedating a patient without fully understanding what you're doing, because we now know that sedation is the number one thing that can go wrong, even when it's in the hands of anesthesiologists. So the beginning question is to talked about you said that you only work with anesthesiologists. The truth is that's only a very recent phenomena. And actually we have not surveyed NASPAGAN recently but I'm pretty sure it was 2007 or so that we did a survey at the annual meeting. This was with Chris Leacoris at CHOP and there were a lot of people involved in this survey. And at that point, more than a third of pediatric endoscopists in 2007 were doing all of their cases with their own sedation, not using anesthesiologists. About a third were uh, split half and half and then only a third were only working with anesthesiologists. So, you know, it's been a shift now in the last, I would say, 10 years to most cases with anesthesiologists. Is that safer? Depends on the anesthesiologist, right? So now we have to work with our anesthesiologists and get them to improve the quality of what they're doing. That's a a whole uh, narrative I have going where I don't want to, I am asked often to think about sedation, but these days I want to ask my anesthesiologist to really focus on standardizing what they do and using an evidence basis for what they do. But sure, if you're working with a safe anesthesiologist and you don't know much about sedation yourself, that's the safest way to go. Again, if you have those skills and knowledge, and and you're following an evidence basis for how you sedate kids, it may be appropriate at times to be doing the sedation ourselves.
1: Is that change that we're also that people are also seeing in adult GI, or has it primarily been in, in pediatrics?
2: No, it's been an adult GI as well, and uh, and it's been noticed, and in particular, it's been noticed by the Center for Medicare Services, or. You know, CMS, which basically dictates cost and charges and also what revenue you can get for Medicare patients. And that really then sets the standard of what you should expect to get for doing a procedure. So, compensation for procedures. So, they started realizing that endoscopists, adult endoscopists, were doing most of their screening colonoscopies with anesthesiologists, and they started chipping away at the compensation that adult gastroenterologists are getting for colonoscopy for that reason. So, that is why you see the billing codes that often will say, with moderate sedation or not, because right. if it's with, you'll get a little bit more money. Sure. And that's a choice. But that that same discussion of safety has to belong to the adult endoscopist, too. They they also need to understand skills and the evidence for what they're doing and be, be competent to give the sedation themselves. So. Right, right.
0: So it almost sounds like you made a career in pediatric GI by looking at something that most people would consider a side story. Can you talk a little more about that?
2: Yes. So I have a bit of a reputation for um, thinking outside the box, which of course sounds very cliche. Uh, But the truth is when I say that, I think what I've been willing to do is think a little bit or get into the areas of pediatric GI that many of us and and myself included often roll our eyes at or find sort of the boring stuff, but it, it's the, the burdens we have to bear as, as gastroenterologists. Um, so certainly with sedation, uh, when I first got into that, a, a big question, how that played out was we, we had this issue where uh, we had patients who just didn't sedate well, and we couldn't quite get them sedated well without being scared that they were over-sedated. And, um, and so that led to uh, actually often erring on the side of holding the patient down. There were literally papoose uh, boards that we were using uh, to keep a child strapped down, and we would hold them down. And a, A whole part of my research for a while was literally counting the seconds and even minutes that we were holding a child down as we did endoscopy, which was not pleasant and never very pleasant to think about, and nobody really wanted to talk about it afterwards, certainly not something we were talking about with the patients or their families, um, but clearly was an issue, and uh, and I, I definitely saw it as something I could study and, and see if I could get better. And I think that willingness to realize that we all are dealing with something that's annoying has been... Um, and and that there might be a career in studying those things are, are uh, something I've actually tried to teach to other people so um, so I've, I've been uh, lucky I've had a couple of fellows uh, they are now all very established attendings in their own rights but um, but I, I've had some wonderful people who've... Willingly sometimes, sometimes with thumb screws, followed me into uh an area because I have seen that it could be um something that nobody else is really looking at and and really would be worthy of better study. So a couple of examples that come to mind. Uh one is um Raid McSweeney at Boston Children's, uh who really has an entire career and wonderful body of work at this point around uh, kids with G tubes um and uh really I think G tubes um, are something in pediatric GI that are useful, but they also, as we all know, cause a lot of problems, a lot of granulation tissue. The families are unhappy. They cause pain. Um, they're certainly the bane of a consult in the ER is a kid with a G-tube that needs immediate help because the, it fell out or, or whatever. The family need, needs help with it. Um, and it actually, it's amazing, but um, even all the patients we take care of uh, with G-tubes, uh, they often have terrible underlying diseases. That's why we put in the G-tube to begin with. And whatever the underlying disease, congenital heart disease, uh, neurological devastation, the G-tube itself becomes the number one reason that they r- arrive in the ER, that they have problems and have to get to an ER, and even the number one reason that they get admitted uh, so, um, so G-tubes, while they make us roll our eyes as pediatric gastroenterologists, are actually this really fascinating area, and Mairead's done a terrific job of really trying to get that better, uh, for patients and, and for us. Um, and then another, just another quick one, I guess, in terms of a fellow who is now very established in his area, but followed me into something that I didn't want to take on myself, but I just could see it was worthy of study is, um, Danny Mallon in uh, at Cincinnati Children's now uh when he was a fellow at Boston Children's he was our uh clinical educator fellow and he's a fantastic educator and I was working at the time with our um our pediatric practices uh just on some quality work in general and Uh, I was given the opportunity to get involved in educating pediatricians. And I said, why don't we educate them about constipation? And I'll never forget, Danny and I were on call together. So I'm the attending. He's the fellow. It was a midnight need to go to the um, hospital together. And I can't remember why that was. But what I do remember is I knew I had my Literally, Danny lived in Jamaica Plain. I live uh, about a mile away in Chestnut Hill, and I I drove. I said, I'll come pick you up. I picked him up, and in the car on that mile, I gave the hard sell on why I thought – he should really focus on the education that pediatricians needed around constipation and could he do a better job of educating them? And, uh, being Danny, he thought about it for a while. I don't think I, I stole him completely on that midnight ride. Um, but, um, but actually he, he certainly has made an amazing career again in education and again focusing on constipation. And I, I hope all of us in pediatric GI will stop rolling our eyes as much around, uh, referrals from our, our general pediatrician colleagues uh because of the impact uh, that that work is having.
1: I did my fellowship just a couple a few years ago and I think for us most of us, you know, we did our training in the era of high definition uh video endoscopes. Can you tell us a bit more about how endoscopy as a whole has changed over the past 2-3 decades or so?
2: If anyone is really interested in the history of of pediatric endoscopy, Doug Fishman at Baylor did an amazing job, where he really went around and collected interviews with all of the original pediatric endoscopists. It's really an amazing group. He was very kind and included me at the very end. I'm basically laughing a lot, as you can tell. I do. <laughs> so it was a very beautiful film that he made, and it's it's you know available in the Nastigan archives. It might even be on the website. Basically, pediatric endoscopy really starts like the, the, the first publications are in 1974 and 1975 from the WashU group. And they're very funny to look back at because it was like, wow, we could see the stomach. I mean, forget the villi. <laughs> they just were like, excited to be in the stomach. And, and actually, a lot of it was really comparing the fact that uh, they had tried to understand what a child had using radiology studies. And they couldn't, but as soon as they actually put a scope in, they could see something that otherwise you really needed that direct visualization. Those were not the high definition, you know, uh, scopes we use today. They were definitely fiber optic uh, scopes uh, that didn't involve any video screens. So you were really looking directly into a scope and definitely, you know, quality of the images was nowhere near what we have become now accustomed to. I did not train in that era. I'm nice. younger than that, guys, <laughs> officially. <laughs> but it's actually, it, it is always a humbling uh, realization that what we take for granted has really only been going for like, you know, about 40 years and maybe even less, really, at, at the rate we do it at. I think there's been an evolution of endoscopy in the sense that standard diagnostic endoscopy in pediatrics, we are. We're doing it well, and we're accustomed to excellent scopes, and we feel very confident using upper endoscopy and colonoscopy to diagnose disease, and we do it all the time. The new world, of course, is pushing forward into therapeutic procedures. So I'd say that's, that's the next, next frontier. <laughs> yeah. How does nasal endoscopy play a part here? Transnasal endoscopy is pretty amazing. So I had the real honor. Um, I, was, I was invited to be out at Colorado Children's as a visiting professor. And I specifically only wanted to go as long as I could spend a day with Joel Friedlander watching him. And was like, I say it was like seeing a driverless car for the first time. I mean, I actually have difficulty envisioning what that looks like, a driverless car. And I certainly have difficulty envisioning Um, transnasal endoscopy in the office. So we'll see the kid, we'll say, "Hmm, maybe you've got celiac and we'll drop the scope right there. (laughs) No anesthesia, no nothing. And can you do that yet? No, but that is probably in our future to be there. So that's pretty cool. Um, And definitely going to change our entire, all of our practices. So in your careers, maybe not mine, (laughs) Um, but it's coming. It's coming. Very cool. Very cool.
3: So you mentioned earlier that we're very comfortable doing upper endoscopy and colonoscopy. We're getting very good at it in pediatrics. But being good is a measure. You know, you have to to define what that means. So when you think about that, how do you define a quality endoscopy exam? What makes a good test good?
2: The bottom line is the definition of quality is something we can all take a stab at. But I've been very lucky to be now part of an international effort that's been going on over the last two to three years uh, that's joint Naspagan Espagan led um, myself, Catherine Walsh at Sick Kids and Mike Thompson um, in Sheffield New, uh, England in the UK have basically been re- leading this very big group, so over thirty people involved in trying to define what is high quality endoscopy in kids. Um, it clearly needs something that is safe, but it also needs to be uh, effective at getting you there. It needs to be efficient, you know, booked somewhat quickly available when you need it done in a timely way. You know, you don't want to spend an hour and a half doing a colonoscopy. That's, that's not a good colonoscopy and unless, unless there was a reason, but they, that should be not the, the norm. <laughs> so we have to get people understanding uh, what, what exactly is a, and efficient uh, pediatric colonoscopy. And then certainly we also are looking at all of the non-technical parts of the procedure. So did you communicate well when you uh, obtained informed consent? Did the patients feel comfortable in the unit? Um, And then uh, were the the findings of the procedure, were those well communicated, including pathology findings? So no good uh, to do a scope and not communicate the findings to the patient in a way that the patient can then and act on that information. So, so all of that needs to be part of this definition, and um, and I think you'll see some documents, hopefully in the next couple of months, coming out uh, about five papers all coming out together on the quality, uh, defining the quality of pediatric endoscopy.
3: Great, looking forward to it.
2: You had
0: previously mentioned penguin. Yes, Peter mentioned <laughs> more about
3: pen-quin.
0: penguin. 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 (laughs) Penguin is my husband's favorite animal. We have penguins all over the house. (laughs) My kids pretend they're penguins. It's, it's a little crazy, but,
1: but who thought of that acronym?
0: Well, I I
2: will will officially, I I will officially take credit for the acronym. Oh, that's that's awesome. Came up with a little while ago. Thank oh, you. That's incredible. But, um, but I will nice. give, and and Jen, you'll, you'll like this, or at least your husband will like it. Um. So Catherine Walsh has she knows people, and so she's come up with a little mascot, and it's oh, an endoscope wow. in the shape of a penguin, and it lights up. Anyway, you'll see it. I can't. Wait. But um. But it stands for the. Awesome. It's the pediatric endoscope quality improvement network and and the goal is to really you know not just create these standards and indicators as part of the Penguin working group but ideally to to start to create registries and ways that people can really uh you know, contribute their data, but also have, have access to other data. And really, we can start to get an evidence basis for what we're doing. Again, what's so amazing about pediatric endoscopy, you take it for granted, but so much of what we do has absolutely no evidence basis behind it. So, so lot, lots of work to be done still to define it all under the auspices of Penquin. Right. So thank you for liking that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, if I to a journal and I see Penquin, I'm going to read it.
0: Yeah, I think you're going to have to uh, submit that image to the journal to see if it will become on the cover f- image. It's figure
1: one, every paper, it's a Penguin.
0: Yeah, but could also be the cover of the journal.
1: Oh, that's true.
0: That would be really cool. Then you could get a frame. <laughs> now a frame. I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to know Hyman is listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So right. kind of moving past, so we talk about quality endoscopic exam, and obviously doing this procedure is not necessarily intuitive. So this is something that you learn during your three-year pediatric gastroenterology fellowship. So how do you approach teaching a fellow the principles and skills of endoscopy and what role do you think simulation may have in this educational process?
2: So, um, yeah, so the, the principles that I probably try to drum into people uh, are really fall into two categories, I guess. One is really explaining that it's not just technical skills. There there are so many non-technical skills one needs to learn. So um, to really keep a patient comfortable Which again, we think of sedation as that, but actually, it's talking to them nicely in the pre-op area. It's making the family feel comfortable from the minute you walk in the door. It's somehow, you know, seeming like you know what you're doing, and that's hard for a fellow who's often quite nervous. (laughs) That can really throw us off. So I need them to work on those non-technical skills. Certainly in the procedure itself, intra-procedurally, it's very important to communicate very. Clearly to uh, people who are helping you, whether that's your attending, but also importantly to the technicians, the nurses, you know, open the biopsy forceps, close the biopsy forceps. Those those issues need to be very clearly said, and um, and to working with an anesthesiologist to be very clear. Hey, I'm coming out now. You can start. Turning down your propofol so that we're all not still sitting in the room, you know, half an hour (laughs) after I came out. That's you know a really important piece to communicate. Uh, So um, so all all of these non technical pieces to the procedure, and again all the way through to the after the procedure, communicating results. The technical skills, you know, there are different levels of competency. So you're you're competent enough. And, and then you're an expert. Really competent en- enough is where we want to get fellows in those three years to actually become highly competent. Most people are going to take a couple of years after fellowship, particularly around colonoscopy. So we have plenty of data showing us that we do not do enough colons during our fellowships in GI to end, get our fellowships uh, highly competent in colonoscopy. It takes about 400 to 500 colonoscopies to become highly competent. And so that's not going to happen by learning with 100 or even 150 or 200 colonoscopies in your fellowship. So you really have to be prepared. It's going to take a lot. The first thing is, by the way, anybody watching somebody do colonoscopy who's never tried it before is probably unconsciously uncompetent. So they actually have no idea around, they have no idea that how hard it is, right? You don't know it until you actually try it. Then you're like, oh my goodness, you sort of, now you have respect, you're, you're consciously Incompetent, And then by the time you graduate, ideally you are consciously competent. So you're just doing it without even being able to fully explain what you're doing. And the analogy I'll often use for the fellows is like learning to drive a manual car, a stick shift car. So when you first start driving the standard shift car... Just not, you know, getting the, the clutch and the brake and the the whole gears, and it feels very uncomfortable. And after a while, you're luckily you don't even think about what you're doing; you're just driving. And that and that is the goal of colonoscopy: is to just be driving without really thinking about it. But it, it does take, as I said, about 400 cases. Where does simulation come in? Well, you know, you don't know stress till you try to be an attending for a fellow who's you know doing this for the first time. It's really quite dramatic, and so certainly hands-on. Learning in simulation is something I've been very interested in now for a while. It was very clear it was going to be a tool to teach people endoscopy. So I got pretty interested in it a while ago. And I also was able to learn a lot about what's called the ITT Center, so the Interactive Technology and Training Center, which is something the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy runs. And we've actually now held a number of courses at the ITT Center in Chicago. Often we'll try to do whenever NASP begins in Chicago. We'll try to hold a course, but we've done them independently as well, trying to give people a chance to learn how to do things that you don't want to do for the first time. In a child, you'd rather try it for the first time in, in a model of some sort. So, right, first ten times in a model, <laughs> 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 preferably as many times as you can. That's the bottom line.
1: Obviously, like you know the ASG center, like it's hard to get there in July. If- I don't know. What are your thoughts yeah. about kind of more hands-on training in July for first-year fellows?
2: Right. So actually, if you're an adult GI fellow, they are running, the, they run their fellows courses. So they actually have really hit a point where almost all adult fellows will go to Chicago before they they try anything oh, wow. at home. So that's number one. Um, there are uh, boxes. There are different things you can put together yourself. There are also s- simulation you know, devices one can buy. Um, and then they're actually, I think equally effective, uh, is as a box, there's a guy named Chris Thompson at the Brigham who designed a box that actually we had at the chime course last year in Chicago. Um, and I, that was the, what I was teaching on and, you know, you're going around to the pig stomachs and it, it seems like the cool stuff until you got to the box. And all of a sudden that was really a chance to practice the driving Mm -hmm. and just doing the games. And so yes, trying to get the fellows to recognize how to really get good, is not about being in something that feels like a human intestinal tract. It's really learning how to work with the scope, how to torque, how to sure. you know you move your dials, how, how to really do that. So um, yeah, there are many different simulation devices, and definitely I encourage any type of simulation prior to actually trying it.
3: <laughs> you talked about the low low fidelity simulation, like the box. Kind of uh, model, and I have to give credit to Ivana Robel, who's one of the pediatric gastroenterologists at Calgary, where I did my fellowship, and she jerry-rigged this um, one of those accordion-shaped toilet plungers. (laughs) <laughs> and uh if you can imagine like the ones that have sort of that section of, of collapsible plastic yeah what she yes. did is she she tacked uh, the numbers one to 12 around the different rings inside and so you know the object was to just learn torque and be able to run from 1 to 12 and kind of understand what your tip is doing as you inserted the the scope tip into this toilet plunger and and it worked for those basic <laughs> techniques yes we brand new off the shelf at a hardware store, Um, but, (laughs) but it really, it really works. And so uh, I, you know, people need to realize that you don't have to get the hundred thousand dollar high fidelity simulator to work on some of those basic skills.
0: We have yeah, to back yeah. up because awesome. Peter said it's more realistic if we don't clean. But you don't actually put poop in the toilet. <laughs> or you try I, not. To be honest, do. I don't you know try. what this accordion the, thing
3: looks
1: like. Not
0: in the handle part. Uh, I'm know.
3: gonna I'm gonna try and move this show
0: along.
3: That's a real question. So 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 sort of along the lines of faculty support supporting each other. What's the best advice you've received in your career so far?
2: So probably the best advice I received early on, and it did pay out and I tend to give it to other people, was to really find a niche and to try to stay focused on that. So to really have an area that was something people recognized that I was doing. And so they would invite me to keep doing it. (laughs) And then if they were doing it, they invited me to collaborate. And I think that's really important to, to pick an area and try to stick with it. I I think when you first enter the world of pediatric GI to what I just said, it's almost a smorgasbord of things you can get involved in. And you're trying to decide, do I want to study hepatology? Do I want to be an IBDologist? Do I want to do QI? Do I want to, you know, do, I mean, you're, you're trying to pick and choose along this different options. but if you can find something that that's, plays to your strengths that gets you excited and that you're going to stick with it that's probably one of the most important things you can do fairly early on and try to try to make that a focus uh, for at least as long as you can and ideally that that's a pretty long time if you pick the right niche i guess the (laughs) follow-up is
3: now that now that you have been doing this for a while do you have any additional advice for for trainees or for junior faculty coming into the field behind you
2: So I would say that it's really important to try not to close doors, that that you will find that people will try to open doors for you, that they see a path that you can go on or an opportunity. And it's really important to try to listen to them and to walk through that door. You just don't know what that's going to lead to. And sometimes it won't make sense to you. When, When I first got interested in sedation, Somebody said, Oh, that sounds like patient safety. That's becoming a hot thing. And I said, No, no, I, I really want just want to study sedation. And they said, No, no, you want to study patient safety. And I didn't quite get it, but I walked through the door, maybe it was prodded through the door. And you know, and and that concept that people are going to see it in a way that you're not expecting or you don't quite get is something you have to be open to. And you walk through the door and you'll see, see what's next. It's great. Right? Uh, do
0: you have any final words for our listeners?
2: Well, I want to, frankly, thank you guys for really bringing this way of us all communicating as a community to NASP again. It's really quite exciting. Again, and I really enjoyed this more than I thought I would. So thank you for inviting <laughs> me to do it.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Yeah.
3: Thank you.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at @bellsounds and on Facebook at At Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes.
1: If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things.
0: One, tell one person about the podcast.
1: Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast.
0: And three, on our Bus sprout page, there is a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGEN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspagan.org.
1: The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs.
0: And as always, the discussions, views, and recommendations on this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and is subject to change with advances in the field.
1: Thank you all for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.